Welcome to Pass It On with CWR Talent. I'm Corinne Winterisay, and this is my podcast. At CWR Talent, we've dedicated this podcast to sharing the experiences of some of the most successful executives in my network. And it's not always the ones at the top. We'll speak to leaders of all styles and hear advice on how to build a rewarding and meaningful career with resilience, tenacity, and balance. For those of you who know me, I've had the pleasure to work with some of the most gifted and bright business leaders over the last 30 years in the hospitality and entertainment industries. I've guided hundreds of candidates in moves of their professional lives. My specialty? Discover talent and pass it on. That's it. In simpler terms, I'm a headhunter with a twist. I hope to shine a light on the beauty of coaching and mentoring to gain emotional intelligence and balance in your life and how you can benefit from what we've got to share. Join me and my very special guests for in-depth Q&A interviews covering our industry's challenges and the current market for talent. This is CWR, and let's pass it on. Good day, everyone, to our second episode of Pass It On. My very special guest for today's episode really knows how to pass it on. I swear he invented it. His name is Tony Potter. And for those of you working in our wonderful hotel industry, Tony has touched so many lives, inspired and mentored many of our senior leaders throughout his fantastic career. Before taking his retirement, Tony served as Chief Executive Officer for Corinthia Hotels International, one of our favorite five-star luxury hotel brands originating in Malta, and developing across the EMEA region. Previously, he served as CEO of Millennium and Copthorne Hotels, CEO of Choice Hotels Europe, and has equally served on the boards at Corinthia, The Other Guys, and was a chair with Vistage, advising business leaders at the macro vision level. His career strategies have paid off over all the years, and it was from his very solid beginnings of over 20 years ago with the Hilton Group in operations as a young hotelier and then as a general manager where he put into practice his love of delivering quality service. Tony began his global hospitality career in Birmingham, where he graduated with top honors from University College Birmingham. He holds a Master of Science in Hospitality, a doctorate in business from Plymouth, is an honorary fellow BFC FDA and a patron of the hotel school in Plymouth. Tony and I met each other during our time at Choice Hotels International when I was serving as his vice president, Human Resources for Europe, and his company acquired the master franchise. I gained a valued friend, colleague, and mentor that day. And when he decided it was time to move on to what can only be described as semi-retirement, Tony founded an innovative consultancy called Brave Eagle with his son, Jason, through which they offered advisory services to make it happen for their clients. Today's topic with Tony will cover what mentors do for your career and personal direction, and we'll have a conversation of substance on what the meaning of service will be going forward, what's next for customers' expectations, and where businesses need to focus their attention for the foreseeable future. I'd like to welcome to pass it on my mentor, my good friend, Tony Potter. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Corrine. Delighted to be here. And uh, congratulations to you for starting such a great initiative. 
Uh, thank you, Tony. You're very kind. Thanks for agreeing to share with us a little bit about your story. I'm delighted to begin by asking you to set the scene for our listeners about your beginnings in our industry. Where did it all begin? Well, it was all quite humble, really. Um, I think um, it started when we started visiting uh, regularly a family of ours, an aunt and uncle who owned a very nice country pub with food and music and all of those things that were very popular in the 60s. And I started getting involved and working behind the bar. And then eventually my aunt virtually gave me the pub to run when I was <laughs> over there at the weekends. And that really got me hungry for it. And um, a little later, when I was actually studying law, uh, I had to work in order to make ends meet. And I ended up working in the hotel business in London. I was running the artist bar at the Queen Elizabeth Hall and the Royal Festival Hall catering facilities. And again, I got that bug. And I decided to change horses and go on to a hospitality course. And I was very lucky that the hospitality course I was doing at University College Birmingham was a sandwich course. And during my training, I ended up working for an amazing hotelier, Gordon Edmonds, who owned and ran a pub in Torquay. And mm. this guy was so hands-on um, that he did it as hospitality should be done. He met each of his guests and it was a large hotel. He checked every cover before he allowed anybody in his restaurant. And he was a very personable figure. And I think that not only started it, but gave me the bug of service and uh, being in hospitality and doing it correctly. I believe that. I mean, I think uh, childhood influence is always a big one. I know I had mine uh, growing up with my father owning restaurants in the United States. And, you know, you get thrown in the deep end at 11 years old. Go in, go in the kitchen and do the dishes. <laughs> but, that's uh, right. and, and, but that's the fun. And I think, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of us who've gotten that bug. Tell me, after a 40-year career, I, I read out your bio to our listeners before our interview and after a 40-year career you've been a ceo you've been a president and a chairman of uh, with several different groups several global hotel brands serving as a member of a variety of boards you decided to found brave eagle in 2012 with your son jason potter tell us tell us about the mission of brave eagle and how did that concept come about well again it came about quite naturally and and very pleasantly we're both great fly fishermen and every year we have a weekly pilgrimage where we <laughs> fish, sleep and drink uh, and just chat on the River Nadder in Wiltshire. And on one occasion about, uh, must be about seven years ago, eight years ago now, we were talking about my pending retirement in, in a few years from then. And we started to talk about maybe doing some work together. He was just starting out after gaining his degrees. And we decided that I was interested in service and how to bring it about and how to make it work and how to make people more service conscious and from a customer perspective as well. And he was very strong on the technology. So we felt that together we had something to offer. And uh, we had some really interesting accounts, not only in the hotel industry, but also in retail. We, for example, helped Argos through their <laughs> change period when they were going extremely service orientated more upmarket just before they were taken over and um, we engaged in lots of interesting projects together which 
not only was useful from a perspective that it was revenue, but it taught us a lot as well, especially changing industries a little. Yes, the change of industries is great because hospitality people have a lot of uh, cross-transferable skills that uh, because even retail, of course, is also uh, customer-focused, front-facing, and so the skills are transferable, and I bet that was really interesting for you. Uh, Tell me, how much did coaching and mentoring drive what you did? A tremendous amount. Most of our accounts and most of our assignments and projects were actually either on training or consultancy. But within those areas, we then got highly involved with Brave Eagle with coaching. And I actually um, joined an organization called Vistage and qualified with Vistage on, on their courses, which was very mentoring and coaching orientated. And we used that a lot with the people that had attended courses, with the people we were working with, with the clients who were requesting advice and help on service in general. So, yes, a tremendous amount, as it is in all of our aspects of the hospitality industry, sometimes subconsciously, sometimes not. Right. How important would it be for our aspiring leaders, young leaders coming up behind us to choose a mentor and then present their case and ask for help? I find that a lot of people have difficulty even asking someone to mentor them or trying to identify somebody who can guide them in their career. And I think now more than ever with the lack of personal contact and Zoom meetings to death, that maybe, you know, they're missing a bit that we got the benefit of when we were coming up. Yeah, there's some interesting questions there in, in all in one, really. Um, I think, it, first of all, it is important, in my opinion, to have some mentoring and some coaching. It is absolutely true what you say, that some people find it difficult. And I think that some people don't perhaps even want it because subconsciously they think I don't need a coach Um, or if I do need one, it's a sign of weakness. I mean, nothing is further from the truth. And this is one thing which courses like Vistage and Noble Manhattan uh, really help you understand in terms of being the coach. Yeah, I'll give you an example. The, a lot of people actually receive coaching without knowing it. I mean, I've always felt that I've been coached and mentored by my bosses. I've had some very interesting bosses, bosses in my life. I once received an award for having a career with the most difficult bosses on the planet, but that's not true. <laughs> it's, uh, it's an affectionate way of saying they were good bosses and uh, they taught you a lot by just mentoring and coaching you, although I never actually attended any sessions with them. So it is important. I think it, it, people do find it difficult. I think people need to broach the aspect of coaching in a positive way. Um, everybody needs coaching. I, I believe in you know continual eternal learning. And I still go to people and seek out coaching today. Uh, sometimes not formally, sometimes simply with friends, because, you know, it can be over a pint in a pub. It can be in a more formal environment, but it's critical. It's vital. Yes. And you've mentored and coached many senior executives over the years, including me. Yeah. What is your perception of of people's ability to take good advice and benefit from it? I think this sometimes, like you say, people don't believe there is a problem or that they could benefit from someone else's sure. guidance. Sure. I think. One should not expect coaches to solve the problem for you. 
I think the real benefit of a coach is to try and give you good sound knowledge about the issue. It's to try and give you the ability to realize there are more than one answers and that they have to work that out. And to give you, if you like, the ability to see all of the differing situations within the particular issue you're dealing with. And that's not easy. And one of the things that I realized about myself, many of us coach uh, without training. And when I was coaching without training, I realized that I was far too much in the chief executive role when I needed to switch roles and become the coach. So stop telling people um, what to do and show people the options that there are there and get them to work it out themselves. Asking great questions is really the key. And I was so bad at this when I first started to professionally coach that my men one of my mentors pointed out that I was breaking the back of the chair that I was sitting on because I was <laughs> trying to resist so heavily telling him what to do. <laughs> um, so lots of skills needed by the coach and the person that's being coached. It's not, it's not a, a one-way street. And I think if people realised this more, they would realise the benefits of coaching and they'd be less frightened of it. I think they would be. Tony, we're going to take a little quick pause here and then we'll be right back with the second portion of our interview where we're going to discuss um, the direction service is going to take going forward. Look forward to it. And we're back with Tony Potter. I'm sure, Tony, we can all agree that the whole world has undergone a seismic shift this past year, and it has inevitably changed the way we perceive our personal security, safety, and health, especially when it comes to traveling. Our industry's survival will rely on travel and accommodation being perceived as ultra-safe. Where do you see the delivery of service going over the next several years? That's a great question, Corinne. And um, no one, of course, can be absolutely certain on this. But I do have some views which are worthy, I think, of taking into account. The, the reality is that service itself will become even more important because the actual fundamentals of what is needed will change. I don't think that the actual headings will change as much as what's contained within the headings. Let me give you an example. Cleanliness mm -hmm. has always been, I think, since any survey I've written since I've been in the business, has always been as cleanliness a major determination of service. And I think it will still be. It will yes. still be a necessity. But it will change because it's not only the fact that Obviously, things need to be clean. They now need to be ultra clean. They need now need to be, um, if you like, stated as being clean, guaranteed as being clean. And perception is everything. So I think a lot of the service requirements, a lot of the service needs and a lot of the service aspects will remain the same, but they'll become more intense and more important. I also think that service in general will departmentalize itself a little more so i think mm. high level service will become even higher and more expensive uh, and perhaps more in demand whereas more self-service and more limited service will still be important in terms of delivering for the customer but that will become the more popular choice for business people and i think high levels mm. of 
will gravitate more to leisure, very similar to what it is in America. Indeed. I mean, of these points, cleanliness being uh, and hyper hygiene, you know, and everybody's trying to promote that. How can the the hotel groups reassure someone? Do you anticipate seeing some kind of a gold standard that goes across brands or how do you see that? Well, I think the cleanliness goes right across brands and I don't think will vary very much from um, you know, the more expensive high service brands to the more self-service, more um, limited brands. But I think that there will need to be some convincing. I mean, we need to talk about it. We need to uh, discuss it. But I actually think at the risk of appearing to be a little bit bureaucratic, we need some form of policy statement, some form of charter. And, and I think it's still to be worked out. And no doubt, this comment will bring some controversy, but many of us who are old enough remember way back in America, the sanitation um, certificate covering that we used to put onto a, a lavatory, uh, which basically oh, yeah. that it was going to be clean. I don't actually think it, in real terms it meant an awful lot, but it was perceived as being something which customers accepted was a sign of cleanliness. And I think it's that kind of perception we need to revisit and hopefully give it some teeth as well. But I think it will have to be quite physical. I believe that the self-catering industry has already done this quite well because it's obviously had a comeback faster than hospitality. But now they are talking about um, gold standard hygiene guarantees whereby a cottage or a self-catering apartment has been cleaned to a very high standard, hygienized, dehumidified or whatever is needed. But basically, the key is convincing the customer that it's safe. And it's not only with the product, it's with our staff, it's with the guests. Are there some areas where we will still need to take basic precautions? I believe all of this will be important and people can argue against it as much as they like especially the people that deny the existence of covid or the extent of it it doesn't mm. really matter it's what the guests perceive and there are many many guests out there and i think i'm one of them actually uh, that believe we have to be convinced that it's safe I believe that, too. I have to be convinced that it's safe. Uh, business travel, uh, you know, of course, has gone completely almost non-existent. And as uh, it'll be perceived that people are traveling unnecessarily, which also gives a different kind of a stigma to a brand. If, if people are you know, not taking advantage of, of all the rules and, and such, but what would you think the second comfort point would be behind hygiene and ultra safety uh, as far as cleanliness goes? What would be the second comfort point that people are looking for? Well, again, I don't think it's new. I think it's been around forever, but again, it's got a different context. And I would say that it's security. And to some extent, the security goes back to the issue we've just been talking about, you know, how safe are we from uh, health issues? How safe mm -hmm. are we from COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also got another aspect to it, especially in the high end of, of hotel um, hospitality businesses. And that is that more and more people are becoming concerned about being safe, safe from Theft, safe from violence, safe from 
um, you know, being kept safe, particularly in a inner city environment like Los Angeles or even London or Paris. And therefore, mm-hmm. security is going to have to be ultra important. And already we're seeing and we've seen this in the last 10 years, nothing to do with COVID. We've seen suites with bulletproof um, you know, glass in them and bulletproof windows. It it might be regarded as over the top and, you know, is it really necessary? Again, it goes back to perception. People need to feel safe. Um, and I think, therefore, security is going to be a biggie still. Um, there yes. are a couple of others um, which, again, don't change. I think a very big one is confidence, reliability, and consistency that's always been around but again it's very important because more people are using hotels hotels are not cheap things people need confidence um, that the product's going to deliver and they also need consistency because it's no good if it delivers one day and not the next and as people pay more out of their own pocket I think these factors become more and more important. Yes, they certainly do. Uh, is there a going to be a price point issue with people? Because people have obviously not been traveling for about a year. And when everybody goes back out there and has the confidence and feels safe and gets all the right messages from the hotel brands or the restaurant brands, you know, what what is going to be the way forward for people to be able to afford it? Do you believe that the price points are going to go because of lack of numbers? Well, that's a great question. Uh, first of all, affordability is going to be an issue, full stop, because there's there's less money around, there's less discretionary spend, um, and people are going to find it difficult. And I think the market is going to be, certainly initially, much smaller. But having said all of that, I think it would be wrong for the hotel industry and the hospitality industry to start discounting on the back of encouraging people to use a product because we're out of COVID. I think we should encourage people to use the products because the products do what they say they should do and represent value for money. Um, Anybody who tries to price scourge and put prices up unnecessarily simply because there is more cost in perhaps presenting the product is making a mistake. And equally, anybody who starts discounting now is making a mistake because you can't suddenly say, right, we're fully clear of COVID. So we're putting the prices back up. You will end up in a price lock, which will damage you. I think it has to be approached sensibly, honestly, value for money, uh, high level quality and consistency, which if you think about it, has never been different. It's just a period we're going through now. I think I learned that from you back in the 9-11 days when all the hotels had all of a sudden a a drop in business travel and travel full stop. And there were so many difficulties with that period. And I remember you telling me, uh, do not cut rates during this period. You'll never get them back. It'll take you 10 years to get your rates back up. Well, well, I had an old boss who's still an old friend called John Wilson. And he used to say to me, Tony, cut your margin, cut your throat. And that was a piece of mentoring I never forgot. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, that's for a fact. And I remember at that time, we all, uh, all the brands that were discounting to death to try to get anyone in the door struggled for a good period, a good 10 years to be able to bring their rates back up to what, yeah. what they had been. Not that rates should just consistently and constantly, you just go up and up and up and up. But there are the realities of the costs of all this cleanliness now and the hyper safeness and all the extra costs to the hotel. So I actually expect it to be translated down to the customer at some point. There is, there is another one which I'd like to mention because as old fashioned as it is, I think it will probably cause some um, slight controversy um, because it's one that's always caused controversy. I think that service in the future still needs to be delivered by that very old customer maxim the customer is always right and you know we seem very kind of keen these days of having esoteric arguments uh and and i hope this is one that we don't have uh, an argument <laughs> esoteric on because of course the customer isn't technically always right he's, he's like any human being he's wrong but i found in my career that by keeping that in the back of my mind it has always given me the motivation, the ability, and the sense of service that is required in our business. And if you yeah. want to start arguing about it, I really think you should leave the business. I, I feel that strong about it. Because, yes, technically you're right. The customer's not always right, but we always need to think that he is. And I think that will stay with us hopefully forever. This I agree with you completely on that. That's the service in itself for people to work in the service industry you have to like serving people and you have to remember that's why they're there that's why they're spending their money exactly what you're saying to remind yourself at the back of your head that this is what it's all about and and that the customer is always right even when he's wrong and i think there are some people that as i my business is discovering talent there are some people that do not want to serve and so you wonder why they are in the service industry because they do not like serving. And so it's quite clear. It comes out in personalities. I think there's a certain personality to our type of people who like to serve others and and uh, enjoy ourselves by doing that. That's absolutely right. I mean, would you believe, um, and, and some people may feel a slight tinge of guilt on this, there are still interviews where service people are interviewed and the question do you like and wish to give service is not answered not sorry it's not a not it's not asked it's certainly not answered it's not asked no i don't think they I, I, it's funny how it doesn't occur to me i'm listening for these signals all the time especially when you're going to pick someone for a function or a role sure where their communication with other people is going to be intense and they have to have that personality of giving and service and if they don't have it it's quite difficult. Yeah, and of course, communication in general is that final point for me uh, that is important in terms of service, and even more so today. I'm sorry to draw comparisons from other industries, but I actually think the hotel industry is pretty good generally with service compared with other industries, but I do hope we don't slip. I mean, for example, with technology, it's practically impossible to communicate with a human being in the insurance business or in yeah. utilities business. And we've all experienced the kind of, don't call them whatever you do because you get wrapped up in 10 stages of technology. So I think communication mm. and utilizing technology properly 
is a real key for the hotel industry and the service industry in general. Let's get it right. We have the knowledge. Um, it frustrates me slightly that a lot of the communication knowledge, social media that we use is driven by techos. Not all, but it's driven by techos and doesn't have a balance of hospitality people because I think technology has a bad name. I don't think there's anything wrong with technology. I think what is wrong is how we use it. That's a very good point. I think that's definitely a fact. And in hospitality, as it's all built around the whole idea of service to others, I think there's where people kind of get stuck and then they don't realize, you know, what the lessons can be learned. Mistakes are necessary to learn. Positive results can come from any lessons we learn from this global pandemic situation. But what what is the one mistake, for example, Tony, you might have made from which you've learned an indisputable lesson? Well, there are so many, it's difficult to actually pick one out, but I will. <laughs> pick <laughs> a good one. <laughs> I, I picked this one out because there's also a, an upside to it. I think when I joined the public company as CEO of Friendly Hotels, which eventually became uh, Quality and Choice, which is where we met, I made, the, right. I made the mistake, and it was a mistake, of feeling I could fix the financial corporate position of Friendly. It wasn't fixable. And that doesn't mean we weren't successful. It, it took me into franchising and we were very successful in the area. But to actually solve the corporate structure, which wasn't my particular barrow, you know, I was more of an operator, a marketeer, et cetera, but you needed that as well, was not possible because of the debt. And it took me a long time to understand that, about two years. But where it benefited me was it, it really demonstrated to read the not very obvious financial uh, structures of a company and a business. It taught me how to be far more corporate and astute in financial terms at corporate level. Um, it taught me how to deal with very difficult situations and how to bring in expertise when you really needed some assistance. And mm -hmm. I greatly, I, I don't think joining the company was a mistake. Was a mistake to join the company believing I could actually fix the financial woes, uh, because <laughs> far more financially orientated than people like me, including one of the owners, Henry Edwards, couldn't do it either. But it's, I think, like any mistake, you've not got to let it get you down. You've got to say, We are where we are. Let's learn from this mistake. And now let's turn this mistake into benefits and things which we can be successful with. And Friendly went on for many, many years uh, after then. So there's always something you can do. But that's one of the biggest kind of personal mistakes I've ever made. I, I must mention one, which is seems very small, but taught me a real lesson. I had a very bad habit uh, before I was capable of typing and using a computer myself. Of, of, I didn't realize <laughs> it was bad at the time, of writing on a piece of paper, secretary. And without any real malice of forethought, I actually wrote on a piece of paper from a letter of complaint, this guy's never going to give up. Just let's give him the money back. And it wasn't particularly um, nasty, but unfortunately, she copied it by mistake and sent it to the guy with my reply. And he took real, <laughs> he took real offense at it. 
And I understand oh, dear. because he didn't know that I was a very customer orientated person. So he could have thought I was just writing something quite silly. So I learned a big lesson and I'd, I'd tell anybody to be careful. Whatever you're writing on a piece of paper about anybody, good or bad, be very careful because it can end up in their hands. Yes, there's a there's a real trick to avoid. Yeah. Um, tell me something, Tony. What is your favorite quote that is the most pertinent for us today? Well, I, I can't resist this one. I'm sorry. And I have it in graphic form uh, on my wall and I've given it to all my kids. But it's simply never, ever give up. I think that's so important because so many times, I don't care how strong you are, I don't care how good you are, we all think about wouldn't it be easier just to give up? And, and I link that with another quote, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it is, in terms of solving a problem, this is the quote. What is it that we could do? That, sorry, I beg your pardon. Let me start this again. What is it that we can't do today, but we may be able to do tomorrow, which would solve our problem or our issue? And the reason why I like that is some things can't be solved today. It's not possible today. But don't let's give up. Let's work out what is really needed. What is the art of achieving the impossible? And then let's work on achieving that because that will fix the issue. I think that's something which I've always used in my own mind and, and which I will continue to use because it does help you find that impossible solution. I think that's fantastic advice, Tony. And I so much appreciate you coming to join me on Pass It On and I hope you'll come back and keep sharing with us. I think it's uh, it's lots of fun, and uh, I hope to see you very, very soon. Thanks very much, Corrine, and um, thank you for the opportunity. I certainly will come back, and I wish you and your future guests all the greatest in the future. Well, that's all the time we've got today. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode on Pass It On, please give us a like and a follow to receive notification of our next episode with our industry's most creative minds and talents. We're counting on you to help us keep discovering talent and pass it on. We appreciate your support. If anyone would like more information or advisory services through Tony Potter, you can reach Tony at Tony at braveeagle.com or through CWR Talent, we're happy to pass it on. And finally, a very special thank you to Nancy Sharp of the Cider House Studio in Wilton, Connecticut for the gorgeous original art of our title page, www.theciderhousestudio.com. Nancy creates art that makes you happy. I know it does me. Please join us for our next episode of Pass It On with CWR Talent. Click on follow and we're on our way. Available across Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Apple Podcasts. See you soon.